Welcome to the podcast of Unity Fort Worth. In it, you'll hear this week's message and meditation. If you'd like to hear and see the complete service, you can always find it at unityfortworth.org or on the Unity Fort Worth Facebook page. Unity Fort Worth focuses on positive and practical Christianity with a willingness to explore the entire world of religion and spiritual thought. Unity Fort Worth streams live every Sunday at 11 a.m. Thanks for listening to the Unity Fort Worth podcast. Chapter 7 and 8, we're getting closer to the end. So last week we realized something really important in Siddhartha's journey. Siddhartha came out of his ascetic existence that he lived for three years. He learned about asceticism by following the samanas and understanding what it means to deprive himself from any pleasure, any wealth, <clears throat> any form of outside influences. And in the last, last Sunday, we talked about as he arrived in the city and he met Kamala and Kamaswami, how he started to learn about pleasure and learn about wealth and about materialism in a very interesting way. Especially in his interactions with Kamaswami, the merchant, he understood that it was all a game. Because at that point, he was still very much an ascetic. He very much still understood that the outside world is pleasurable, yes, and important, but it's not the truth of who he is. He had this awakening experience just before he entered the city. He awakened to the truth that he was Atman, the self. He lifted the veil of maya, of illusion, and had a pure experience. An experience, by the way, that we all have probably had already in our lives multiple times. We just don't call it something fancy. We don't call it awakened or enlightenment, but maybe we call it peak experience or runner's high. Musicians can relate to it as they play a piece of music and they lose themselves in the music. Time goes anywhere. Time is gone. The worries about paying our bills is gone. In that moment, we're truly understanding what it means to be whole, to be one with God, to be one with our Christ self, the higher self that Siddhartha calls Atman. So in the last two chapters, he learned about pleasure and desire with Kamala, and he learned about wealth and materialism uh, through Kamaswami. I promise to you, I will explain to you why both names start with Kama. Kama is a Sanskrit word that means beauty, love, and joy. It's that which underlies all of existence. Kama is the very basis of life. Without Kama, nothing will come into existence. Kama law 
expresses a very specific essence of that pure existence, just as we get to express a very specific essence of the truth of the spirit that is within us, that we all share together. Kama Swami, the word Swami means control or order. So we have joy, pleasure, love, that is controlled and in order. That's why Kama Swami, this merchant, is also interpreted as someone who is a materialist, someone who has lost the essence of Kama and has fallen for what in traditional Christianity probably will be called Satan or the devil, or we will just simply call materialism. So those two characters are really important in Siddhartha's life. In chapter 7, we now learn that time has passed and quite some time has passed. We don't really know how old Siddhartha was when he first left and then met the Samanas and studied with the Samanas, but we can assume that he was either in the late teens or early 20s. We get to know in those two chapters that now Siddhartha is 40 years old. 20 years or so have passed. And he has lived the life of the merchant. He has lived his life with Kamala as his companion. He has learned the pleasures. He has learned the wealth. He is now a wealthy man himself. He's dressing in fancy clothes. He's bathing in perfume and all that. And in this chapter 7, he realizes it's just not enough. After 20 years of achieving what he thought would bring him closer to himself, he realizes that he even lost his ability to see it all as a game. His awakening is a mere remembrance of the far past. He remembers that he had this experience of awakening, but he's no longer able to get to that. That's where we start out. So in Sansara, and by the way, there's two different spellings. Most people probably would here have a different spelling in mind with an N as in Mary rather than N as in Nancy. So Sansara, Samsara is the same thing. It's the endless cycle of birth and rebirth. In this chapter, he first realizes that it's a pointless cycle. In this pointless cycle, he ran, growing tired, growing old, growing ill. He realizes that he was in this vicious cycle that he cannot escape. And if you read the chapter, anyone resonated with that? Kind of like realizing, wow, that sounds like very much like my own life sometimes, how I feel like I'm a little hamster in a hamster wheel and it just doesn't go anywhere. It's exactly how Siddhartha feels. And the truth be told, I will be not surprised if everyone here today and online would have a clear idea what Siddhartha is talking about when he says, I remember this moment of awakening but I can no longer get there. Because we all have experienced this moment of awakening before, holding a newborn in our hands, 
giving a dear friend we haven't seen for years a hug, and tears flow out down our cheeks because we can no longer explain how much that relationship means to us. Words are no longer important. We all have had that in our lives multiple times, but we may have lost the ability to get to it at will. That's where Siddhartha is. The other thing he says, he says the name of this game was Sansara. First time he introduced that term, a game for children, a game which was perhaps enjoyable to play once, twice, 10 times maybe, but forever and ever. No thank you, right? And don't we feel sometimes so helpless and hopeless once we realize that that cycle we experience, even though we might do certain things, we might read a special book or we might come to church every Sunday, or we might do all the things that we believe are necessary in order for us to break through, and yet we keep playing the same game, the game of samsara, the endless cycle of birth and rebirth. We're not playing it just in our lifetime once, because we are born and then we pass and then we move on and maybe go into a next lifetime, right? Like the reincarnation idea. We're playing the life of birth and rebirth all the time, multiple times a day, multiple times a week, multiple times a month and year. Because every time when we birth something new, something else must die. And as long as we attach it to something that Kamala represented to Siddhartha or Kamaswami, we will never escape that cycle. And he realizes that in this chapter. This is a depiction, one of many, of how this cycle looks like. There's many theories around it, many philosophies around it, six realms and uh, things like that, that you have to go through that. In Indian culture, Eastern culture, you think of karmic ladder, right? So where you have a karma, where you, know, you might be a little bug, and if you do well as a bug, the next time you're a little beetle, and then you, you grow, and if you're a human being eventually, and you're doing something really bad, you might end up back as a bug, and then you have to continue, you know, that's that endless cycle, right? I remember John Shelby Spong, Dr. John Shelby Spong, who is one of my favorites, an Episcopal bishop. Um, he's passed now. He had six doctorate degrees, an extremely intelligent man, very well-versed and very much in love with unity, by the way. He loved unity teachings. He said the karmic ladder, the karma idea is nothing else than the Christian heaven and hell idea. It's a way to control, a way to tell someone that you're not good enough, that you must do certain things in order to go to heaven, or you must do certain things so the next time when you get reincarnated, you move on from a cat or a dog, maybe to a human being, right? same control system. That was his opinion. I always thought um, that was so interesting that he was willing to approach it that way as an Episcopal bishop. <clears throat> so we have this samsara going on, and Siddhartha is experiencing it to a degree <clears throat> where he gets really depressed. 
if you read the book, you probably saw he's not only depressed, he's actually suicidal. He gets so frustrated about himself that he, wanted, he wants to end his life at some point. This is a moment, and I don't want to make this too scary, where it helps us to check in. How often have we felt like that in a moment? Maybe not suicidal, but maybe just desperate, of just not getting anywhere. Just doing the right thing, getting the degree our parents were asking us to get, or getting our own degree because we, we said we want to do this, or buying a house and buying this, having raising a family. After doing all these things, how often have we stopped and said, why? Why even bother? And ended up in this helpless, dark place. That's where Siddhartha is in this chapter. And once he realizes that, that the life that he has been living for 20 years is not what he needs in order to realize what he set out to do. Remember, he set out to do to find himself beyond the teachings of the Brahmas, beyond the teachings of the samsaras, even beyond the teaching of Gautama, the Buddha, he said, all these teachings bring me only this far, but I want to go further. And he realizes in this moment, at the end of chapter 7, that what he has been doing for 20 years was anything but counterproductive. And he needs to leave. And he picks up everything, and he just walks away. He just walks out. Leaves everything behind. Now, we can understand this literally as this actually happened. We can also understand it symbolically as when we sometimes want to walk out on certain responsibilities or our lives even. And that's where he is at. He's walking out. Siddhartha left his garden, left the city, and never came back. He will never go back in this story to the city. He's leaving all his wealth behind. All, everything that he learned, he leaves even Kamala behind, who we later learn was pregnant with his child. He doesn't know, but he leaves everything behind because he had this yearning to get back to that one moment where he truly awakened. By the river. Rivers are symbolically extremely important. They're used in scriptural writing often because rivers give us a lot that we can work with. Rivers symbolize the flow of life regardless of what is happening. A river doesn't judge. Whatever you throw in the river, the river will take with him or with her. It doesn't matter to the river. The river keeps flowing no matter what. If it's winter, the, middle, the river may be lower. If it's summer or spring, the river may be higher, but it always flows. There's a lot that goes into the river. And in this chapter, Siddhartha gets back to that river that he was before. He briefly mentions the ferryman. And as you continue on in the story, in the other chapters, you will realize 
how important the ferryman is, the ferryman who helps people across the river so they wouldn't be washed away and die. But he was ready to die here. He was ready to be gone because he did not know anymore how to get in touch with his true self. Deeply, he had been entangled in sansara. He had sucked up disgust and death from all sides into his body like a sponge sucks up water until it, it is full. So he was really in a bad place, wasn't he? The next thing that happens is because he was so tired, he didn't eat for quite some time. He was no longer really a practice samsara. You know, samsara ascetics, they can go on for days without eating and are fine. But he was no longer, he was now a wealthy man being fed all day long. So he gets really tired and then falls asleep. He knows that he has to rest, but he's again in a bad place. Fortunately, you would say, he is so tired that he's not following through what he's really talking about. He's realizing that endless cycle. He doesn't know anymore how to escape it. And that is really a sign that we should take that some of those great teachers that we follow, whether it's Jesus Christ, whether it's Muhammad, may peace be upon him, Abraham, Moses, most of them have had a very difficult time at some point. They didn't get born and then were perfect all day long. Even in the Gospels, I believe we can read that Jesus was not just perfect from the very birth. He had to learn too. And this was Siddhartha's learning here. Now, where do we compare this we don't have a direct comparison of this time in Jesus' life, right? Because we don't really know much about the struggles that Jesus went through before he became that son of God. We kind of don't know anything about it. We can only assume. But what we hear in the stories is very similar. If you look at Jesus stills a storm or Jesus walks on water, both times the disciples are in the boat and they try to cross the Sea of Galilee and guess what? They get into a storm, which is quite common in that area. Even today, the Sea of Galilee gets a lot of wind from the Mediterranean and it's a very rough sea. That is the symbol of the place that Siddhartha is in. To be in that storm is, to, is a place that we often are together when we don't know where to go. Jesus here represents that part in Siddhartha who remembers to be awakened, who remembers that there is Atman, that there is something that will lift the veil so that he can truly become one. And in our stories, in the Christian stories, that's just represented by Jesus being first asleep on the left in the stern. You see him being asleep while everyone goes nuts around him. Then he wakes up and guess what? The storm calms. A symbol of finding the presence, that inner peace. And the same thing happens on the right there. Jesus wasn't really there. He, he left the disciples to go on their own. And then they got in trouble. They got all scared. And then Jesus walks from land 
right, to the boat on water, gets Peter out, he walks a little bit on water and then starts sinking and so on, you know the story. Same idea. Whenever we awaken the true self, the Christ self, things usually calm down. But before, it looks really scary, doesn't it? So we have the comparison here. We have Siddhartha sitting by the river, being in a really bad spot, symbolized here by the disciples, being in a little boat in a stormy sea, really in a bad place. Where do we go from here? Well, in Siddhartha's case, he remembers Om, the holy Om, which is the primal sound, right? Most of you probably will remember. It's, it's actually spelled O-M here, but often it's also spelled A-U-M, using A-U as a diphthong, Om, right? When we say Om, we initiate the very first part of creation. Whenever we sing or chant Om to each other, we recognize what Siddhartha recognized here, that what is perfect, the completion. Let's do it together. Let's say it together. One, two, three. Om. Very simple. So he was in this bad place and he remembered this one little thing from his time when he was a Brahma's son, learning all these scriptures, learning all about the spirituality and so on, and he remembered that. He speaks Om. He speaks it to himself, Om, Om, and again, and he knew about Brahman. Brahman is a different word for Atman. Same thing. Brahman is the ultimate reality, that which we try to get to, that which is separated from us through Maya, through the veil. Here is another. Again, the Om symbol here. On the top left, remember, the diamond. So far, Siddhartha was referring to that diamond as Atman, the higher self. Now he's introducing Brahman. Both are synonymous in that way. There's some differences, but ultimately, the diamond is what represents where we want to go. If you talk about enlightenment, awakening, getting rid of all the troubles that you have, releasing all the judgment, stop worrying about everything, and you know, being prosperous and all that, what we're really saying is we want to push through Maya, the illusion, and not only see the truth, but be the truth at the same time. Siddhartha is initiating that by chanting Om to himself, and then he finally falls asleep. After a long time, he awakens, and guess what who shows up? A monk in yellow robes. And he immediately recognizes this monk as his good friend Govinda. Govinda, who he grew up with, a dear friend, his best friend, who he left behind because Govinda wanted to learn about the truth from Gautama, the Buddha. He became a follower of Gautama. And 20 years later now, they meet again. Siddhartha in a very bad place. So bad, in fact, that 
Govinda did not even recognize him. Siddhartha had to tell him that it is him before Govinda realized, oh my God, yeah, it's you. Have you ever looked at someone, have ever not seen someone for 20 years, and it took you a moment to recognize them because maybe life has really been hard on them or whatever happened? That's how this was. Govinda didn't stop and stay behind of his group because he recognized his good friend. He stopped out of the pureness of his heart because he wanted to take care of that person who was so deep asleep he was worried about him. And that interaction that happens there is very interesting because it's no longer an in, in interaction between two good friends. It's an interaction between two strangers. One who has followed his path with following another teacher and another one who's followed a completely different path and they are no longer together. It's kind of like a sad thing if you think about it. It's sad that they cannot rejoice really of meeting again. But Siddhartha has fallen off his path so far that he is no longer recognizable. I resonate with that because sometimes, multiple times in my life, I have looked in the mirror or reflected on myself and I wonder how far ha have I come from the path that I once took. You know, my wife Elaine and I, we were really lucky being able to be allowed to serve in this ashram in many ways, we had that life, that life of understanding, awakening, what Siddhartha experienced, sheltered outside of the world, not being of the world, but really being in it and allowing that to come alive. And then we left and went, came back into reality, <laughs> had to make money, had to do our laundry, had to rent an apartment. And so I resonate personally very much with where Siddhartha is at, knowing how it feels like and what it is like, and then ending up at that place. And I'm pretty sure that most of us can somehow resonate with that as well. So it's sad here. Govinda leaves, Siddhartha looks, you know, sees him leave. And then finally, he realizes something very important that ties right into Christian teachings. He's telling himself, therefore, he had to go out into the world, lose himself to lust and power, to women, to woman and money, had to become a merchant, a dice gambler, a drinker, and a greedy person until the priest and Samana in him was dead. It's the sacrifice he made. It's the crucifixion that he'd made in the last 20 years. And then finally, he let it all go and was just happy to sit by the river. And this is where chapter 8 ends. But the story doesn't end at all. It only gets better from here. But I want you to get clarity on how difficult this was for Siddhartha. 
and how closely it relates to probably all of our lives at one point or another. And if you have quickly read it or not read it, I encourage you to go and read it again and see it through your eyes, through your life, and empathize not only with Siddhartha, but with yourself. Find the compassion and realize the opportunity that is here. When we compare the two, Siddhartha and Jesus Christ, what really sticks out here is to be not of the world, but in the world. Anyone remembers that? Not to be of the world, but in the world? Some do, right? So we have this passage again. He had to go out into the world, lose himself, which is to be of the world. And then in comparison, we have this passage in John chapter 15 that talks about the world's hatred. He's talking to his disciples about how the world really works. And it's very, very close to what Siddhartha is experiencing here. In the Bible, we read, if you belong to the world, the world would love you as its own because you do not belong to the world, but I have chosen you out of the world. Therefore, the world hates you. If we're not playing the game of having wealth, of having pleasure, if we're not playing the game of anyone and most people who have lost that connection to the true self, to being truly awakened, that part will hate us. It can be in form of people, it can be form of inner workings, that that part is going to hate us. And it's showing up in the Bible over and over again. It's the idea of being off the world means to be caught up, just like Siddhartha, in the pleasures of Kamala, and in the wealth of Kamaswami. He eventually then in chapter 17, that's the entire chapter here, a whole chapter dedicated to prayer. And if you've never read John 17, I encourage you to do it, especially after reading chapter 7 and 8 in Siddhartha. Because here Jesus prays for his disciples. He's talking to his father and his mother, I would say, Father, Mother, God. Mother, Father, God. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them because they do not belong to the world, just as I do not belong to the world. This is very significant. It's an other way of understanding what Siddhartha is going through. Sometimes in our lives, when we truly become who and what we are, it goes completely against what the world is expecting of us. Have you ever experienced that? You know, once you get a glimpse and you say, I want to drop all the masks. I want to drop everything that I do to pretend, and I'm just going to be me. What happens almost instantly? Almost everyone is coming against you, is saying, what are you doing? That's not right, and that's not right, right? That's why Jesus always has to struggle with his mom 
and with his brothers and sisters because the closer someone is to us, the more often they struggle with us becoming truth itself. That's all in here. Do not love the world or the things in the world. The love of the Father is not in those who love the world. In other words, that's exactly what Siddhartha is realizing. The love of Atman, the love of Brahma, doesn't come in the world. It's not of the world. We have to embrace ourselves completely. No exceptions. Ultimately, what this all means is do not conform, but renew our minds. And I'm going to close for today with Paul's message in Romans chapter 12, verse 2. And I'm sure some of you, if not all of you, are very familiar with this. Ultimately, the outcome of what we learn in Siddhartha in those two chapters and what we can learn about Jesus' teachings to not be of the world, but be in the world, be ultimately ourselves, even if the whole world is against us, is this. Do not be conformed to this age, but be transformed by the renewing of the mind so that you may discern what is the will of God what is good and acceptable and perfect. As Siddhartha sits by the river, in many ways he's realizing that. He's no longer conforming. He's no longer willing playing the game. He's ready to renew his mind. And as you read on, that is what's going on. It's the renewal of the mind, an invitation for all of us to do that as well. So let's take that little bit of heaviness maybe, but hopefully some lightness as well, an opportunity into our meditation for today. Take a deep breath and allow that breath to be a symbol of your relaxation. Allow your body, your mind, your heart, your soul to deepen. Breathe into your heart. Allow that heart to expand. Breathe into your mind. Allow that mind to be sharp. Just for a moment, let's resonate with Siddhartha's story. Let's not ignore or push away the things that bother us. Let's simply acknowledge them, 
without being consumed by them. And quietly, as a whisper, or silently in your mind, let's introduce this primal sound, the sound of completion and perfection. Let's quietly chant OM and breathe OM into our existence. Just like Siddhartha did. Quietly, you might recognize that all the worries may fall away, or they may still be there, but a little bit more in the distance. Confidently, together as a community, meditating together, we now step into what we call truth. We step into the truth, the Christ self, the God in expression, the higher self, Atman, Brahman. We step into reality as it truly is, lifting the veil of illusion, Maya, and just be present right here and right now. And once again, let's quietly chant this beautiful sound into our soul. place of perfection we now create. We are not off this world, but we are in it. We're fully in it without regret. We no longer hold back. We no longer diminish ourselves by putting yet another mask on so that others are happy. We become truth. With every breath we take, we remember. We remember how it feels when everything just falls apart and we remember to pick ourselves up. Allow that divine self that spirit to come through. It is that spirit that this world needs. 
It is your spirit that we all need. So put a smile on your face as you look at yourself. Appreciate those things that still need to be worked on a little bit. But also remember that the true self is shining through all the time for you to take hold of and be. Together we take that self and make a commitment to us and others that as much as we can, we allow that self to shine. It is that shining light that brings us joy. It is that shining light that gives us that patience to sit by the river just like Siddhartha and accept the gifts it has to give. So let us close for today by simply moving into a place of gratitude. Let's remember those things that are important to us, the people, the relationships. Let's give thanks to all those that have allowed us to be here today. Let's give thanks to the many mentors we have had in our lives, giving selflessly of their wisdom. Let's give thanks to a place where we can congregate and be with each other, to learn, to grow, to love. And finally, let's give thanks to ourselves. Without our willingness to be the truth, not much will move. So thank you for all of us. And so it is. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Unity Fort Worth podcast. You just heard this week's message and meditation. For the live streams and more information, go to unityfortworth.org.